to be back from Maine. Uh, I preached eight times in New Hampshire and a couple times in Maine. But don't feel bad for me because we got plenty of rest and fishing and moose, all the Maine stuff. So glad to see everybody. I happened to listen to um, Austin's sermon from last week. I felt a little bit like, like Carson Wentz. You know what I mean? I was, Nick Foles just came in and hit, hit, you know, just took him right to the Super Bowl. So it was great. Austin brought a great message and um, it's exciting. A couple quick announcements. I um, want to remind you that we need more teachers, especially this fall. That's a good problem. We have a ton of kids coming, hundreds. And um, we had a great soccer camp this week, 95 kids here in the gospel. But we need more teachers in the fall, especially for kindergarten, for second grade. But I want you to pray about it. And if you're not kid safe, that's just a state law. You have to, to go through some um, things for training. So next Sunday, the 19th, we have a kid safe training at 11 o'clock. So pray about that. Also, don't forget, on the 26th, we have a picnic after the service. So you definitely want to be here. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a baptism on that day here in the church. Then we're going to have a picnic afterward. If you're a Christian and you're not baptized, right, ask yourself, why would I not get baptized? Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them. A follower of Christ who's forgiven of their sins is to get baptized. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not people trying to dunk you. So if, if you haven't gone to the class but you still want to get baptized on 26, let me know and we'll set that up. Um, I think that's the main things, but this morning... I want us to um, begin by, by talking about what we're talking about. So you can kind of get a picture. If you're, if you're new to us, we read through the Bible. We study through the Bible. Last, uh, this past long period of time, since the spring, we've been going through the book of Numbers. But now we're doing a series of doctrines, okay? So there's two ways to study the Bible. You go verse by verse, and then you study topics, okay? Now, for some of you, I didn't grow up in a church where they read from the Bible. It blew me away. Everyone had a Bible. So right now, we have folks that are coming, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll give you one. Or if you forgot your Bible, don't be embarrassed. Or, um, but we give Bibles away all the time. But then what we do is we say, hey, listen, let's see what the Bible teaches about these various subjects. So this morning, we're doing the doctrine of the future. We're going to do that for the next few weeks. What does the Bible teach about the future? We already did the doctrine of God and salvation. What does the Bible teach about the church? What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? But now we want to talk about the future. And there's a number of things to, to sort of reflect on when you think about the future. First of all, one of the things that's interesting is to think that over one-fourth of the Bible, when it was written, was prophecy. It was predictions. Some of them have already been fulfilled. So, for example, Micah predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But at the time it was written, it was a prediction. So, as you can see here, out of the 8,300-some verses in the Bible... Um, I'm sorry, 8,000 out of the 31,000 were prophecy. So, so the idea would be people are like, ah, I don't, you know, it's all going to pan out. I'm like, wait a minute, you should think about what the Bible teaches about prophecy and this thing's not working. Any help, hope? I'm not getting any clicks here, click, click guy. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, let me try, hang on. Um, did, all right, well. Let's see. Okay, we're good, we're good. The importance of biblical prophecy. I just want to make a point here. When Paul planted churches, when you read in the book of Acts, he planted a church in Thessalonica, and right away he taught them Bible prophecy. We know that because the Bible says he was probably only there about three weeks. But when he wrote the, the letters to them, he goes, remember what I taught you? 
Don't you forget what I taught you about the day of the Lord, about the Antichrist, about the return of Christ. So Christians should know about what the Bible teaches about the future. So we have a statement of faith, and it's important. If you choose a church, you ought to figure out what do they believe, right? Do you believe what they believe, right? So we believe in, in the personal, bodily, premillennial return of Jesus, and we'll talk about that, but, but the idea is that we believe Jesus is coming again, and the result of that, it should motivate us to godly living, service, mission, and we ought to think about what happens to people who aren't saved, who aren't right with God when Jesus comes back. We believe God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel. So Jesus said, no one comes to God but through me. So he gave us a commission, go and tell everyone in the world about me because I'm coming again to judge them. And if they don't repent and believe in me, Jesus said, he that does not believe is condemned already. They will perish. They will go to a place of eternal conscious punishment. We're going to look at that. We're going to say, what does the Bible teach about hell? When people say, my God would never put anyone in hell, I'm like, well, then you don't believe the God of the Bible because he doesn't want to put people there, but the Bible's clear. And then what happens to us? What happens to Christians? So every Christian should at least have a general sense of at least these five things about the future. Number one, as a Christian, this isn't just for preachers or theologians, what does the Bible teach about the intermediate existence of the dead? So this morning we're going to talk about that. Where do people go right when they die, right now? Right? Where's grandma? Okay. Number two, what does the Bible teach about the great tribulation? Some of you are like, I never even heard of that. Jesus said in Matthew 24, pay attention, there will be a great tribulation such as the world has never seen. And then what about this rapture? You know, somebody had on their bumper sticker, warning in case of rapture. Christians should know what the rapture is. What does that mean to be caught up? Now, bear in mind that Christians have different views on some of these. Like, will the rapture be before the tribulation or after? But as a Christian, these are things that I hope you have a pen here. Write some of these things down because these are the things that people ask us, right? The return of Christ, the resurrections. Maybe you've heard people say, well, do, we, do, do Christians go to judgment? And the Bible says, yes. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But that's not judgment of whether I'm going to heaven. That's rewards. Christians should think about that. Like, what, what do you mean? What are rewards? I thought you shouldn't do things for rewards, Okay. And then, what does the Bible teach about the millennium? Now, that word's not even in the Bible, but there's a phrase in Revelation 20 used seven times, a thousand years, a thousand years. What does that mean? Christians have different views on the future and what this thousand years is. And then, the whole idea of a new heavens and earth. So, for example, we're not going to be floating around with harps up in heaven forever. That's just temporary. The Bible teaches that believers will be on earth. New heavens and a new earth. So, this morning, we're going to start with the intermediate existence of the dead. I was once in visiting a, a, a hospital, and this older man who I had shared the gospel with many times, he had died, right? And when I arrived, the whole family was still around his bed, right? He had just died. And one of the family members said, um, Tom, I think Grandpop is right here with us. What do you think? Like somehow he's hovering above the bed and, you know, what do you think? Do you think he's right here with us? And I said, well, let me start with this. It really doesn't matter what I think, but let me tell you what the Bible says, okay? 
So when it comes to death, some people believe in reincarnation. Some people believe in annihilation. You just cease to exist. But there's two unbiblical views held by some people who call themselves Christians, and I want you to be familiar with these. The first one's called soul sleep. And the reason for this, what I call an unbiblical view, is because the Bible refers to death sometimes as sleep. Okay? So every time you read the word sleep in the Bible, it's not always death, but you look at the context. So when Jesus said about Lazarus, he said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. But we, we read and we realize, well, what he meant was he died, okay? In 1 Thessalonians 4, it describes Christians who have died. It says, don't sorrow for those who have fallen asleep. So what has happened is, if, if you're familiar with the Seventh-day Adventist, many of you have heard of them, you probably know of a Seventh-day Adventist church around here. They believe that when a Christian dies, both their body and their soul go to sleep, Right? So this is called soul sleep. In other words, what happens if a Christian dies? Well, they're just laying in the ground. They're not conscious. Their body and soul are sleeping until the resurrection, okay? Now, I, I think the Bible is very clear that's not true. And probably the clearest passage on that would be in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul describes his desire to be with the Lord. So he says, being of good courage and knowing while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather. Now look at this phrase. Jot this down. So if somebody asks you, well, I thought you just go to sleep. It says, no, I want to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So when someone dies, they don't fall asleep. Their soul leaves their body. Well, where does it go? Well, if they're a Christian, they're at home with the Lord. And as a result of that, Paul said, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Being a Christian is, is, is really living your life like a thank you note. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross for me. I want to learn the rest of my life just how to be pleasing to you. I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven. I just want to thank you for dying for me. But that's why I go, how can souls be asleep? It says you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, what about this idea of purgatory? Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you may have never heard about this. But if you've come from a Roman Catholic background, you, you were taught about purgatory if you paid attention, okay? Now, purgatory in the Roman Catholic tradition is a place where you go after you die. Now, if you happen to be a saint and did miracles, you go right to heaven. But in the Catholic tradition, most people, even if you're faithful in the church, you die and then your soul goes to purgatory. Well, what's going on there? Well, you're, you're, you're kind of like in hell, but it's only temporary. You're purging away and paying for your sins. And there's a mystery to it because the Catholic Church gives no indication of how long you're going to be there. So you pray for the dead. You have mass for them. And you ask the Lord to let them out of purgatory as soon as possible. Okay? Now, the question is, where did they get that from? Well, technically it's not in the Bible, right? But you have to understand that in the Catholic tradition, and we welcome, we have many people here that study with us from the Roman Catholic background. We're so glad you're here. You're very welcome here. And we, we're here to just dialogue, not to judge, but to look at what the Bible teaches, okay? So, so the Roman Catholic tradition basically says this. 
that the popes speak for Christ. And so if they make a declaration about something, that's the word of God. Now they call it tradition. So if the pope says at one point, Mary was a perpetual virgin, that is now the word of God. If, if the pope says Mary, or, 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 or if the pope says in this case, there's a place called purgatory and that's where souls go, then that's what they believe. Now, interestingly, if you were to say to them, but wait a minute, that's not in the Bible. Well, it wasn't for years. But in the 1500s, and those of you who are from a Catholic background, you probably have already noticed, why is their Bible different from ours? The Roman Catholic Bible has 12, 14 extra books. Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, in the 1500s, one of the popes declared that these extra books would be considered scripture. So starting in the 1500, now the Apocrypha is the Catholic, that's part of their Bible. So if you were to say to them, well, purgatory is not in the Bible, they would say it's in our Bible. But you could say to them, well, it's curious that while it's in the book of 1 Maccabees chapter 9, even your own church didn't consider that scripture until the 1500s. And it was at a time when there was this raging debate about whether purgatory was scriptural. So it's quite convenient then to add Maccabees. Now it's in the Bible, okay? But I want to show you a couple passages in the Bible why I think purgatory can't be biblical. Number one, Jesus described a story of a man named Abraham who died. Oh, not Abraham. A man named Lazarus who, who died and a rich man who died. And some people say, this is a parable. I go, well, let me, let me point out two things. Jesus didn't say it was a parable, and there's no other parables where he names names, right? So I don't have any reason to believe that this isn't a literal story in which Jesus tells what happens to these two guys. The one guy died, and the Bible says, and we'll look at it later, he went to hell. In verse 24, he says, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham says to him, Here's the problem, verse 26. Between us and you, there is a great chasm, a gulf fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, that none may come across over from there to us. So the idea is, when people died, either you went to a place of paradise and comfort, or you went to hell in flames. And Abraham says, there's no revolving doors here. Your, your, your destiny is permanent. There's a great gulf. So, so the idea of purging your sins for a while and then going into heaven, that contradicts the Bible. Okay? Now, I, I get it. Like for many people, when you hear things that are like, well, wait a minute, that's not what I was told. That can be very upsetting, particularly when you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not what my family believes. Right? And this is the journey we all have to wrestle with. Even when Jesus was on earth, he said to the Jews of his day, why do you forsake the word of God for your traditions, okay? But let me give you a, a bigger reason why I think purgatory is very unbiblical. Because I want you to think about the implications of that. When Jesus hung on the cross, was he basically saying, your salvation is like going Dutch at a restaurant. You pay part, and I pay part. Because the idea of having to go to purgatory is basically saying, what Jesus did on the cross was part of my salvation, but not enough. 
I also have to purge away my sins. And I want, to think, want you to think with me. Okay, what am I saying then about Jesus on the cross? So first of all, I think the Bible is very clear. There's no need for purgatory. Why would I need purgatory if Jesus hung on the cross? Okay, so for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, as it describes Jesus, it says, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, when he had himself purged our sins, now isn't that interesting? Same root, purge, purge. He himself, by himself, purged our sins. He sat down. So we all agree on this. Roman Catholics, Protestants, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what do you mean by that? He takes away the sin of the world. And what I want you to think about is when he hung on the cross, right, as he's being punished for our sins and shedding his blood, he didn't say, I paid my part. See what he said? It is finished. This is why we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Right? So to cast yourself on Christ is to believe that that cross was everything to pay for my sin. Now, here's an interesting caveat related to that. The Bible's very clear that our salvation is not dependent on our works. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. We all would say, yeah, the Bible says by God's grace, we are saved through faith, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Are you ready for this? So I was preaching once, and I, I, a young man, probably in his 20s, came to me, and he said, I said, hey, listen, he, he said, that was really interesting, because he was Roman Catholic. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think God will let you into heaven? And if so, why? And he said, well, I don't deserve it. It must all be by his grace because Jesus died on the cross for me. And I was like, I think he gets it. But for some reason, I asked him a further question. I said, so if that's true, will you go to purgatory? And he said, well, of course. I said, well, wait a minute. Why would you go to purgatory if Jesus died for you? He goes, well, I'm not pure enough to go right into heaven because I still have to purge away my sins. So we would all agree that if a person says, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. They're, they're trying to make a prepayment, like Jesus didn't pay it all. He and I are splitting it, right? We would say, the Bible's clear that you're not saved if you're trusting in your works. You have to abandon that and throw yourself on Christ. But how is that different from a person who says, well, I have to make a postpayment? You see, the issue is this. Either Jesus paid it all or he didn't. You cannot add to the cross. So for us, we celebrate. Those of us who embrace the Bible, we say, look, Jesus paid for our sins. Salvation isn't something you have to go down into purgatory for any more than you have to be good to get to heaven. You, you cast yourself on Christ and you rest that his cross was enough. Now, so what the Bible seems to clearly teach is this. When people die, their souls go immediately to heaven or to hell. Now, just this week, twice, once in Maine and once down here, someone asked me, they were desperate, if I kill myself, will God still let me into heaven? Now, ironically, next week, Dr. Jeff Black, one of our um, Karen professors, who's a member here, 
He's going to be doing a whole crosstalk at the 11 o'clock hour on suicide, right? But I think the Bible teaches, no, suicide does not keep you from going to heaven if you're truly saved. But if you want to learn more about that, Dr. Black, or if you want to talk afterward, that's fine. So, so here's the question then. All right, so they go immediately to heaven or hell. So, 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 okay, what happens to an unbeliever? If a person dies and they have not come to Christ, what does the Bible say? Well, we saw that. It says they are in torment, they are in agony in the flames. So the souls of anyone who has already died, if they're not Christians, they're not in purgatory. They're in Hades, and they're in conscious torment. Now, that's hard to stomach. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't believe that. I'm like, well, it's not our job to, to, to pick and choose the Bible like a buffet. If that's what the Bible teaches, I might not understand now why, but that's God's design is he's not willing that anyone goes there. That's why he sent Christ. But the alternative is if you don't accept Christ and come his way, then that's where people go, okay? So, so the next question would be, What about people in the Old Testament? What was the intermediate state before Jesus came? Now, I'm going to share, this is my personal view. This is held by many preachers and theologians. Not all Christians agree with this, but I want you to just follow along and show me if you go, oh, I don't think that's what the Bible says. Because as we saw, so Jesus described these two guys that died. One is in hell, in flames, and it says he looks across and he sees other people in a place of paradise, comfort, and he asks to come across, and they say, no, you can't do that. So wait a minute. I thought people in hell were down there, and people in heaven were up there. But at least in the Old Testament, that doesn't appear to be the case. These guys were looking across a chasm at one another. So many Christians believe that during the Old Testament, if a believer died, they didn't go up to heaven. That the intermediate state was under the earth, but it was still a place of comfort. It was a place of rest and joy. It wasn't punishment, okay? So let me give you some evidence why I think this is the case. Number one, before Jesus died, we saw him describing paradise in Abraham's bosom as parallel, okay? But what happened after he died? Well, well let, let's start with this. Do you remember the story of Jesus being on the cross and the thief next to him saying, Lord, Remember me. We deserve to die. Look at verse 42. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. So he cast himself on Jesus. Lord Jesus, please save me. Remember me. I believe you're coming in a kingdom. Now notice what Jesus said to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, okay? So where was this paradise? Okay, which tells us this. On Good Friday when Jesus hung his head and said it's finished, right? He didn't go to sleep. His soul was not in his body any longer. They put his body in the grave, but Jesus' soul went to paradise, right? He takes the thief to paradise, and you're like, right, up in heaven. And I go, no, not up in heaven. Because when he came out of the grave, after three days on Sunday morning, when Mary sees him, she starts grabbing him. He goes, stop clinging to me, verse 17, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he said, well, Jesus, hang on. On Friday, you said you were going to paradise. It's Sunday, and you haven't gone to the Father. Where were you? And Jesus says, I already told you. 
I was in paradise. Well, how could you be in paradise? Because it wasn't up in heaven. Because at that time, paradise was still under the earth. But after Christ paid for sin and rose from the dead, when he ascended to the Father, he took with him these Old Testament saints. And there's some evidence for that. The first one being in Ephesians 4. When it describes Christ giving gifts, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. What does that mean? When Jesus went back up on high to heaven, he led captive a host of captives. Well, who would that be? Well, my personal opinion would be all the Old Testament saints, Abraham and all of the believers. And you're like, that's it? That flimsy little verse and you're going to make up? And I go, well, wait a minute. We know from, from those other passages that paradise was under the earth. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, describes going up to heaven to paradise. So we've all heard the proverbial story, maybe you did this once or you had a problem, where you go to somebody and say, hey, I have a friend who has this, this, and this, and, and you're basically going, are we talking about you here? So that's what Paul does. He talks about this guy he knows who got to go up to heaven. But later in this passage, he goes, it was me. So look what he says. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. You go, third heaven? How many heavens are there? I'm not even going to... I was going to do a pun like, for heaven's sake, but I'm not going to do that. All right. But I really still did. All right, so why does the Bible speak of a third heaven? Well, there's the earthly atmosphere... Genesis 1, he separated the water below and above. He called this expanse heaven. So we look into the heaven. But then there's this realm that the Bible calls the heavenly places where we wrestle against principalities and powers. And then the third heaven is where Christ is. And you go, yeah, well, where are you going with this? Well, keep reading. He said, this man, I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. God knows. He was caught up into paradise. And you're like, Milton, okay, we know you wrote Paradise Lost, but, but I never heard of Paradise Moved. Well, you did now, right? I think what the Bible teaches is that once Christ went back to heaven, that Paradise is, is, is where Christ is now and where the souls of people go who are saved. If you're a believer, if you were to die today, you will go to the third heaven and be with Christ in Paradise. That's what Paul said. I'm absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, I remember somebody at a Bible study at my home. He wasn't a believer, and he just burst out. He goes, well, that sounds boring, just sitting up there playing harps. And his wife's like, oh, honey, stop. And I'm like, no, let him talk. So that's a good question. That seems fair. That seems boring, just going up there and playing harps. I said, let's start with this. It beats the alternative, right? <laughs> but that's just a starting point. How does the Bible describe paradise? Some of you have lost a loved one recently, a child, a parent. Some of you are like, I don't know what's going to happen if I die. Well, I want you to think about what's going on up there. What is it like for believers in paradise today with Jesus? So from now on, if you're a Christian, you'll know this. You don't need to fear death, right? Philippians 1, Paul was in prison, and he was thinking that they might kill him. He goes, but you know what? I'm right with that. For to me, to live is Christ. In other words, I'm just here on earth, not for me, but to let Christ live through me. 
and to die is gain. So the worst thing that could happen to me is a good thing. I get an upgrade. It's not a lateral promotion. It's not just moving to first class. It's way better than that. To die is gain. He says in verse 23, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, right? Now, none of us have a death wish. I mean, I hope most of you aren't sitting around going, I I just want to die. But people feel that pain. But as a Christian, do you see Paul's dilemma? Heaven is good. I heard of a preacher who had a gun pulled on him. This is what he said. Now, I wouldn't do this, but he said, you can't threaten me with heaven, right? I'm like, wow, that's, that's a lot of faith. But why is it very much better? What, what's going on? Well, first of all, you're in the very presence of Christ. The psalmist said in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So, so in the Old Testament, he's like, I know you're not going to just leave me in that underworld, God. And then he made a prediction about Jesus. He said, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So David prophesied about the resurrection of Christ. And you're like, how do you know that? You know, I know that because Peter quoted that verse. In Acts chapter 2, he goes, Jesus rose from the dead, just like David said. You won't allow the Holy One to stay in decay. Jesus didn't rot in his grave. He resurrected. But then he said, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever, right? So first of all, it's an upgrade because it's fullness of joy. Nothing that you've ever experienced or I've ever experienced will even closely compare with the joy and pleasure. You're like, yeah, well, I know some things that are really pleasurable. And I go, this is better. And it all depends on your age, you know. For a 12-year-old, it might like play computer games all day, you know. For some country boys, like, you mean I get to fish all day or play baseball or be on Facebook? And I go, stop talking, please. The Bible makes it clear that in heaven is unspeakable joy. None of the things of this life, no sorrow, no pain. In other words, if any of, if, you know, as much as we want to bring our loved ones back, they're like, please don't make me go back. I, I paid my dues there, right? They're in unspeakable joy, right? Here's another way the Bible describes it. I heard a voice from heaven saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. So it's a place of joy a place of pleasure, a place of rest. Now you go, what does that mean, rest from your labors? Yeah, I hate my job anyway. I can't wait to go on holy unemployment. I'm going, no, no, no. A couple of things to think about here. Number one, these are probably labors for Christ, things that people do for Jesus, which if some of you are, if some of you are going, what's that? Okay, that's a problem. You're like, what? Are we supposed to be doing things for Jesus if we're Christians? Uh, yeah. Right? Which, which we sadly live in a culture where so many people are like, well, the church is for me. It's just like my buffet to come pick and choose. No. Jesus died that we might serve and labor for Christ and pray and give and, and look forward to that time of rest. Wow. And then in the book of Hebrews, it's not, it's not isolated, solitary, give me my own mansion, as the old kid song, where we can play football. It's very corporate. It's very communal. All of the beings up in heaven are worshiping and serving Christ together. This is a beautiful verse. In Hebrews 12, the author is saying, look, remember back in the Old Testament on Mount Zion and everybody was terrified, or on Mount Sinai, everybody was terrified? Listen, now if you're a believer in Christ, you you come to the heavenly Mount Zion 
Well, what's up there in heaven? The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels. That's a big number. Myriads, like innumerable angels are up there, right? Who else is up there? Verse 23. The general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Your grandmom, your cousin, all those who knew the Lord. They're up there worshiping with angels and, and people. And the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Every dear Christian, as a child or a 90-year-old, they're all surrounding the throne and worshiping Jesus corporately with the angels with unspeakable joy. Trust me, they're not bored, right? So that gives me hope. Okay, if I die, I'm not going to just go floating around with a harp to this, or what's going to happen? Jesus already said, I'm the resurrection of life. If you believe in me, though you should die, you will live. And so let that comfort you, all right? But then remember that the intermediate state is only temporary. That's why we call it intermediate, okay? It's not the end all for your soul to go to heaven. Now, bear with me here, but I'm going to use an illustration. It's kind of like a waiting room, but much better, okay? So maybe I was thinking, how could I illustrate this? Well, we have a lot of doctors in our church, so poke a little fun. It's fun. So you go, did you ever notice that when you go to the doctor, there's really two waiting rooms, right? The first one is the external waiting room, right, where you, you know, you're watching your clock. And not all, some of you probably get them in right away. But, you know, once in a while we'll go to the doctor. I've been out here 45 minutes. And then they go, uh, Mr. Allen, come on in. Well, I've, I've been around the barn a couple times. I know all that means is I'm going to another waiting room where I'm going to wait another. But you break it up a little bit. So, so, and I'm not taking a knock at doctors. What I'm trying to say is when you die and you go to be with the Lord, that's temporary. It's not complete. It's not fullness. It's not the end all. Here's an example of people who were with Jesus, but they still were unsettled. There was something more that they were longing for. John describes a heavenly scene in which he sees those who have been slain because of the word of God. And these souls cried out, Lord, how long will you refrain from judging our, and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so it raises all kinds of questions, like how do they know what's going on down here? And why aren't they just like, Jesus, I praise you, I'm so glad to be in heaven. Because it's not the end. We were created to be within our body, to be resurrected. And so notice, now this is where, have you ever heard people talk about white-robed saints, people up there in heaven in their robes? The souls are going, how long? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. So I'm fine with saying, my loved ones are up in heaven with a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their servants were to be killed. In other words, there are more people that God's saving, right? But remember this, that, the, that, that, that at one point, when Jesus comes back, you are going to be reunited with your body, okay? So while my mother passed years ago, and it was, it was terribly sad. I love her, but I know she's with Christ. And we buried her. Actually, she was cremated, which I'll just put this out there. I don't think the Bible forbids that, right? But one day when Jesus comes, he will resurrect her body, and her spirit then will be reunited with this new glorified body. That's the goal. So right now we call it intermediate because it's, they're rejoicing, but that they're just in their soul. The goal is to come back to your body and be resurrected and not float around with harps, right? 
This is why the Bible talks about in the kingdom of God, we'll eat and drink. You know, angels don't eat and drink, you know. But, but people do. We're made in the image of God with physical bodies. So when Paul describes this, he goes, now listen, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. That's what I'm doing. I don't want you to go, I don't know what happens when Christians die. Now you know. Now notice why. He says, so that you don't grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now, unfortunately, some Christians have misunderstood this verse. They're like, why are you crying? My mom died. Is she a Christian? Yeah. Well, then why are you crying? She's in heaven. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying don't grieve, don't cry, don't weep. It's saying don't grieve, cry, and weep as those who have no hope, right? It's stupid to think that we would not weep and, 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 and mourn the loss of loved ones. Some of you are in the, the heart of pain. We have one brother here. His wife died like six years ago. He said it hasn't gotten any better, and I understand that. But it's not a hopeless grief. I've seen hopeless grief. I've seen people climb into the casket, clinging to the body, because they didn't know what's going to happen. I'll never see them again. But this is the joy of being a Christian. Paul says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now notice verse 15. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. That could be today. Before this day is over, the Lord Jesus Christ could come back from heaven. And every single one of you and me better ask this question, am I ready for that? If Jesus comes back today, Paul says, our loved ones who have fallen asleep, whose souls are with the Lord, don't worry about them. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Now notice, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So, so all of our loved ones who are already in the intermediate state will come out of the grave. Their souls will come back into their body, Right? And they will have this perfect, resurrected, glorified body that never feels sorrow or pain. But what about us? Now, personally, I, I'll tell you what I love about this verse. Paul goes, we who are alive and remain. Number one, he was hoping it would be him. And I'm right there with him. I'm going, I don't mind skipping death. Anybody with me on that one? Like, you know, a monopoly of skip and go and, you know, pass and go. I'm I'd be happy if I'm like, yeah, last enemy death. Sorry, I'm going around you. So there will be a generation of people who will be alive. What a joy if we are alive when Christ returns, right? But the reality is there are some of you that may be closer to that, that day when we may be called to leave this earth. And so Paul says, remember this. We'll meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. So those of you that miss your spouse, miss your child, Man, I, I can't even imagine your unspeakable pain. But Paul says, comfort one another with these words. So technically, we never lose loved ones if they're a Christian, because some's only lost if you don't know where it is. We're just separated from them. And God forbid, I would hate to, to bury my wife or my children or my grandchildren, but this is the hope, the solid rock that we have as Christians, that there's a great comfort, that we know what's going on. We know where they are, we know what's coming, and we know what we can anticipate if for some reason the Lord calls us to cross that river of death. So as we close this morning, just a couple things I want you to think about. Number one, if Jesus came back today, where does your mind go? Are you afraid of that? Are you terrified that, that you wouldn't go to heaven? Or do you, do, do you say, well, actually, that's a good thing. I look forward to the Lord coming back because I know that I'm forgiven. 
I know that Christ is my Lord and Savior. Many, many, many people have come to Christ over that very singular thought, and that may happen to you today. You're laying in your bed tonight, and you're thinking to yourself, if he comes back, I'm not saved. And, and, and I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to perish. And so I encourage you to, while you can, call on the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I believe you died for me. If you used to believe in purgatory, you don't need to anymore. Believe in Christ, that he died and rose again for your salvation. Turn to him and, and surrender and say, Lord Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? You say, can I do that? Of course you can. Jesus said, Anyone who comes to me, I won't cast them out. He won't say, nah, you're too sinful. But how sad there will be millions of people who will never come to Christ, and it's their fault. But if you're a Christian, number one, I hope that this comforts you, okay? That it focuses you, that we rejoice, and thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much that you died and rose again to give us hope. I don't need to be afraid to die anymore. The Bible says Christ, hold, the devil holds people captive through fear of death. But you know what Jesus said? If you continue in my words, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So let's take a moment now and let's celebrate. Jesus is coming back. But since he's coming back, I also need to do some inventory. Then really what matters in life is not whether my kid goes to Harvard, it's whether my kid goes to heaven, Right? It's not how big is my portfolio, but what's my place in the body of Christ? As one person said, there's only one life and it'll soon be passed, but those things that are done for Christ will last. And so knowing that Christ would come back is supposed to awaken us. Some of you have lost your way with Jesus. He still loves you, but the Bible says abide in him so when he returns, you won't shrink away in shame but that you'll be glad to see him because you've been living for him. And let's pray for all of us that we might follow Christ closely, thanking him for his grace, praying that, that we can bring more people into his kingdom during this short time that we're here on earth, giving, serving, praying, living for Christ with that eager anticipation. Come, Lord Jesus, and I would love for it to be while I'm still alive, amen? But if God calls any one of us, May we meet death with sweet peace, knowing that in just a moment, I'm going to wake up in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Your truth sets us free. May we as Christians rejoice in our great hope. Death is so ugly, but we know that Christ conquered death, that he overcame the grave, and therefore we have hope. I pray for all those who have lost loved ones and are so sad. And maybe they think their loved one might be in hell, but we don't know that because the thief on the cross got saved at the last moment. And if we weren't there, we wouldn't have known that. But give all of your children great comfort. Help us to serve you out of love, Lord Jesus, because of what you've done. Give us an urgency to pray for our children, our family, our friends, to give, serve you in this church. And one day we look forward to that day when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. We give you glory and we pray that we will hear even this week of people who got saved because they heard your word today and gave their lives to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.
Be in prayer. Next week, we're going to talk about the tribulation and the rapture. So bring your friends back.